Are we there? Are we there? There we are. All right. Playing with the buttons and knobs again. You guys all know me by now. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I am film critic, creator, and host, Debbie Elias. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad and print and online 24-7, particularly on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line. Film, television, music, um, cinematographers, sound designers, editors, screenwriters, producers, actors, we got them all. Uh, it's very exciting right now. You know, we are in awards season, but there's still indie gems that are popping up out there. And I'm very thrilled because, pardon the pun, people, but it's going to be an excellent show today. Thanks to our guest popping up at the midpoint of the show, none other than Alex Winter, a.k.a. William Bill S. Preston Esquire. Um, Alex is going to be here. He has a new, you may, you know him best from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, but he is an acclaimed and, and well-lauded director, documentary director. And he has a new documentary out called Trust Machine, the story of blockchain. So we're going to talk to Alex all about what blockchain is and involving blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and this new documentary that hones in on the human aspect and connects us through people involved in the whole process from around the globe, I might add. We've also got joining us today, director Moby Longinotto with his talking about his new documentary, The Joneses. Fascinating, fascinating documentary. Um, 74-year-old transgender divorcee and grandmother down in the Bible Belt in Mississippi. Uh, Sherry Jones is the subject of the doc. And uh, I got to tell you, she's a hoot and a holler. Watching her in the doc, she is a hoot and a holler. Uh, But we're going to talk to Moby about how this doc came to be. I think it's been about six years in the process. So he'll be around around the quarter hour mark. But before then... Anyone that knows me, follows me on social media, you know. My diehard show, go-to show has been, for the past five television seasons, The Last Ship. Well, last night was the finale to end all finales. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for any of The Last Ship fans that have not seen it yet. I think our German audience, uh, you guys are going to see the finale, I think, tonight. Uh, and some of the other European countries, it's going to be this week. But uh, we were all there live tweeting last night with a lot of the cast, most notably my pal, Brent Foster, who has played for the past five seasons, the fabulous Wolf Taylor. And 
last week on Thursday before the finale, Brent and I finally caught up, finally had a chance to talk at great length uh, about the last ship, about where his career goes from here, and all kinds of fun stuff. That interview is already up on BehindTheLensOnline.net, by the way, with audio clips uh, in addition to the text so you can actually hear Brent talk. But for those of you listening now, one of the big things, because he has been such a fan favorite, and this has been such a jump in his exposure on an international basis, um, I had to ask him, you know, what will what are the memories? What is the most important thing that he's going to take away now that the last ship is gone? Take a listen to what Bren had to say. I think it's going to be if 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 I could say the experience. It's it's got to be the relationship. It's got to be the um, you know the moments sitting down when you got Kevin Michael Martin making me laugh so hard my stomach hurts. It's got to be the um, listening to Jocko Tim's stories, um, sitting around with, with Travis and, and Bridget, um, watching Jody dance the music on set and then literally flicking a switch and being 100% Azima. Um, and I think that, that, that particular circle from um, Kevin to Jocko to Bridget to Travis to Jody, that particular circle, I think that's, that's where most of the, um, the good memories and the, uh, the moments in between takes, the moments before and after action, um, and the, uh, the feelings afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, especially there was, that, there was a moment when, um, I don't know if you know, but the, the time when my leg got blown up in episode four, um, that was a pre- pretty significant moment because we actually improvised that scene. And it was the first time we'd ever really kind of been allowed to just go and improvise it and then Bud Kemp and Katie Swain came out of the uh, the, the tent after watching the monitors and they were both crying um, so that originally went for a lot longer um, that scene and obviously it's going to pass down to like a 44 minute show um, mm-hmm. if you're on television so they're not going to use the whole scene, the, everything that we improvised but they used a good little chunk of it but that, that particular moment with the, with the four of us there, that's, um, that's an experience I'll remember before and after that um, everyone was fully committed. Um, and as I said, just all the other moments with, you know, from Jocko to Kevin, to Travis, to just everyone being all together and the laughs and, you know, the good times. And, and I remember saying to the guys once, and I remember we were walking through one of the sound stages and we were all laughing and we were having a really good time. And I said to them, guys, you know, one day it's going to end. Uh, we come, we hear all the time. We kind of take it for granted. We, we laugh. We you know, be silly, we muck around, we go on set, we go off set, we go home, we come, but see this, what we're doing now, and I looked at them all, everyone's in a great mood, everyone's smiling and laughing, but this is going to end one day, and we're going to look back, and we're going to remember these moments, and then there was a little bit, a little moment of silence, <laughs> like it was out of a movie, there was a little moment of silence, and they're like, yeah, you're right, you're right, and I think Kevin actually said it to me last time I saw him, he was like, remember you said that, and I said, yeah, I do remember I said that, mate, I do remember I said that, so, um, yeah, so of course, the experiences that, that I'm going to remember and hold dear. And, um, yeah, they're always like, they're, they're going to be with me. No one can take them away from me because they're my memories and they're uh, something I'll hold on to dearly. And knowing Bran, as long as I've known him, he will cherish those memories. And, of course, all of his compatriots there that he was referring to, Kevin Michael Martin, Jocko Sims, 
the incomparable Miss Jody Turner Smith, uh, Travis Van Winkle, the guys that make up Vulture Team. Um, and boy, oh boy, let me tell you, you got some, if you haven't seen the final episode yet, you've really got something ahead of you. Um, but again, you can catch my full interview with Bran on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, but now let's move on to sound and music. Uh, you know, all of you know, Steve Lee, sound guru and founder of Hollywood Sound Museum, was just here on October 29th. Had a lot of really cool sounds, including a lot of the special sound effects from Poltergeist. Well, one of the, one of the gentlemen who created the Poltergeist sounds, we actually talked about Alan Howarth. Well, ironically... This coming weekend, Alan is being honored and inducted into the 6th Annual Rock Gods Hall of Fame at the Canyon Club out in Agora Hills. Uh, however, let's preface this. Because of all the fires in the area here in Southern California, that venue, I have no current information on the status of the venue or the awards. As of now, it is still scheduled for Sunday, November 18th at the Canyon Club. Tickets are available. You want to ch- go? I highly encourage you. It's always a fun event. But double check what the status is in terms of evacuations and if the club is safe and things like that. And all of that information uh, we still don't have for much of our Southern California area because of the the fires that are ongoing, which, as I was getting ready to go on air, just found out the fire is now headed up to the 118 freeway. So it's still going strong. Uh, and we send our, our thoughts uh, to everybody affected. I know so many, so many people that have already lost their homes. And, of course, let's let's not forget our first responders and all the firefighters that are doing everything they can uh, for Southern California. Uh, but more about Alan. Um, I had a chance to talk to Alan on Saturday, not only about get, being inducted into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame, but also on, because this award this year, they're focusing on those behind the scenes. Uh, the ones that are not front and center. But uh, the little bands, the opening acts, and Alan, as you're going to hear, started as a musician, uh, and then he was a pioneer of the synthesizer. And take a listen here, because he gives us the whole layout of the bands that he played for. He played with a variety of bands and actually opened for acts like The Cream, The Who, Steppenwolf, for many years. Uh, before he got into sound effects, sound design, composing film scores. So take a listen to Alan Howarth talking about his trajectory that has led him to this new accolade on Sunday. Well, I I have to congratulate you on your induction into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame. Well, you know, I I don't know anything about them. I'm there because of Kevin Dugan. He's my buddy. And Sandy put him on the board, and Kevin is Michael Anthony's, I'll say, road guy, but there's more than that. Uh, and Kevin and I go back to being kids that had hair down to our nipples, and we were really good looking at the time. And 
did the whole rock and roll scene as a, a road crew for a band called Rainbow Canyon from Cleveland. And uh, since then, we've stayed in touch forever. We always keep running to each other. We, you know, I love him as a brother, and uh, so Kevin nominated me because he was Alan. You've done all this shit, and nobody knows who you are. I'm going to nominate you. Will you accept? I said, of course. Let's do it. Well, I, don't know, I don't know what this is, but I'll do it. So here we are. Maybe people aren't familiar with all of the bands and things that you played in in your in your youth, in your long-haired youth. Yeah. But you have contributed so much, not only to the film world, but also to the music world. I mean, you were the guy, and this is something that actually Steve and I were just talking about on my show the other week, um, talking about uh, sound effects that you designed for Poltergeist, the sound design mm -hmm. you came up with there, and also the whole thing about uh, using a synthesizer. And you were one of the founders of one of the first synth companies. Yep, yep. I had a, we, it was called Pi, P-I, like Pi R squared, Pi Keyboards and Audio in Cleveland. And and my partner, David Yost, and I were literally, we worked in a, a very popular uh, music store called Defiori's Music, and we were down in the basement as the repair guys. And, uh, you know, it was a family-owned business. They do what they got to do. And we decided to, to, to branch off because we had the one, one rep from ARP, ARP synthesizers. Remember, there's, there's ARPs and Moogs at the time. Mm -hmm. So the ARP guy says, listen, I can, we can make you guys dealers, and you can just be a specialty because this was getting technically complicated enough that, you know, a store that sells violins and trumpets just doesn't understand synthesizers. And I was still always the artist, all right? So it started out as, quote, a recording studio with a repair shop. It eventually became a store. So the, the equivalent of what, he, what when you go, when you look at uh, GC Pro, Guitar Center Pro, mm -hmm. we, were, we were the pioneering, literally, pioneering group of two guys that saw the need for that 20 years before Guitar Center ever did it. Mm -hmm. so, and I've always been a pioneering guy. I mean, for me... My personality is such that I love being the first kid on my block to play with it when there's no manual and nobody knows what you're going to do with it and figuring it out. That's mm -hmm. fun for me. I, I mean, when I was a little kid, I loved puzzles. And so I'm great at puzzles. And then once the puzzle's put together, I'm kind of like looking for the next puzzle. Mm -hmm. I, I figured this out. You guys, I'm kind of done here. What do you got? What, what else is out there that I don't know about? Well, you know, for me, sound design and music is the same thing. Uh, it's just different instruments and different tempos and stuff like that. Like, all my sound effects are tuned. I'm very conscious of pitch. Uh, and, and I learned a lot over the, you know, of, of having the sound effects be in tune with the orchestra or not. Like, uh, like my first Star Trek, uh, you know, I'd make these spaceship sounds on the synthesizer, and then I'd put them up against Jerry Goldsmith's score, and they would disappear because they were in concert with the, the score and they just became part of the music. Mm -hmm. so, I, so on the next Star Trek, uh, Star Trek 2 and 3, I started working with uh, James Honer and going, hey, what key is this part in? Oh, it's in B-flat. Okay, I'm going to not do anything in B-flat. I'm going to do it in uh, uh, something that's not in that, so it's, it, it won't blend. It'll stick out, you know, mm -hmm. or I'll put more noise in it, so all that stuff. But back to answer your question, so the journey, if you want to do the journey, you know, I was 
the rock band thing. Uh, I was very popular in the Cleveland area. We had our one of the bands I was in was called a Silk. I wasn't one of the founding members, but all the rest of the guys were were my buddies from an earlier band. We opened for the Who. We opened for the Cream, for Steppenwolf. Uh, this is all be the early '70s, and then I started the the you know quote my original journey where I was the guitar player, singer, songwriter, everything guy. And I was sort of the Pink Floyd of Cleveland. We were already in quadraphonic, and I had sound effects. You know, the, the, our sound guy had a tape recorder, and he had explosions and noises that were, were part of the thing. It was, it was all that stuff. Yeah, but, um, that 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 band, which was called Braino, which still has never been released. I have the Braino tapes of this, like the, the, the vault that has to be addressed. Uh, the, we were the house band in this, this funky bar called the Smiley Dog Saloon, and their shtick was that they had all these jazz bands come through during the week, booking them uh, when they were out on the road from Cleveland to, or from New York to Chicago, Cleveland was in between. Mm -hmm. so the owner, oh, could get them cheap. And we were the house band, so this jazz band weather report comes through, and we do the whole number. We put them in quadraphonic, I got echoes going on them, and at the end of the night, the club owner goes, hey, you know, Here's, here's a weather report setting up their own gear. And he goes, you guys need somebody to go on the road and take all your stuff. What about these guys? Well, I, I had a job at the music store, and so the sound guy, the side guy, Brian Risner, he went out with weather report, uh, 74, and then two years later, they, they do heavy weather, and they get their Birdland hit, and they're going to go on tour, and Brian goes, hey, you want to come out and take care of all the keyboards for Joe? Because it's, it's way more than I can deal with now. There's like nine analog synthesizers, and you're supposed to be on the road. It's all coming apart. It needs constant maintenance, like a race car, right? They, so went out on the road with them. Four years on the road with Weather Report. This is Jocko Pastorius, Wayne Shorter, Joe Zalinol, and Peter Erskine was the principal drummer, but there were lots of other good guys before that. So now it gets me to L.A., and the oddest of circumstances, this burly biker buddy of mine from Cleveland who knew about the synth shop uh, named Pax, is working at Paramount in, in the transfer bay making copies of tapes, and two guys are standing behind him having a conversation about how they need somebody who knows about synthesizers. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, you got to talk to my buddy Alan, man. Yeah, you're like, what's the weather report? And they look at it and go, weather report, is that the one at 7 o'clock or 11 o'clock? <laughs> they don't know. But nonetheless, they need somebody, and then the door swung open, I... I, you know, I go down and meet him. It's a fellow named Richard Anderson and Steve Flick, who are both Academy Award-winning super sound supervisors later on for, you know, Edward Scissorhands and Robocop and all this other stuff. Uh, but they say, hey, can you make, a, make you know, will you make an audition tape? And I go, what are we doing? He says, well, we're doing Star Trek, the motion picture. Can you make the sound of the Starship Enterprise going from Warp 1 to Warp 7? It was like their, their little requirement. There's some other stuff. I go back to my little dining room studio. I have my Prophet 5 synthesizer, which I was an expert at because I brought it to Joe Zalino in the first place. I dial up the sound on the Prophet, turn the tape, and that became the sound of, of the Enterprise. Wow. On my audition tape. So all of a sudden I was in. I was I was the Enterprise for all of Star Trek. So anything to do with Enterprise, motors and engines and flights. And remember, this is all before any computer stuff. This yep. is all just tape recorders and, and analog synths. And so I would literally fly the, 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 the Enterprise while watching the picture of the acceleration and the decelerations, and the editors would just transfer that and cut it in. But they didn't have Pro Tools in the room. It was, they, were, they were on 35 millimeter. So, 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 you know, 
God bless them, but it was, it was certainly limited. So I brought all that recording studio knowledge to the to the sound effects, to actually special sound effects, because sound effects in those days was, you know, normal stuff, carbides and dog barking and trees and wind and stuff like that, but they needed, you know, sort of, sort of like what ILM was for visuals, I was for sound, right? Make me stuff that doesn't exist, I, you know, dream up something for this, and that's and I worked with Flick and Anderson, and you know, they're the ones who put me on Raiders, and they're the ones who brought me to Poltergeist. And so they were the sound supervisors, but I was the specialist. And and so there was there was, you know, they're, they're all huge now. They're all we're all you know, and, and the other end of it. But they were at the beginning, uh, and that kind of put me on this this pillar. And then the the sound, the the picture editor for the first Star Trek, his next movie was Escape from New York. And he brought me originally as a sound effects specialist, but then I met John Carpenter, and uh, Carpenter and I are the same age, and he's from Kentucky, and I'm from Ohio, so we got along, and he came over to my dining room studio, the same one that was doing Star Trek sound effects. I played him some music and some sound, he goes, yeah, let's do it. And so my first film score was Escape from New York. So you talk about blessed, first, first sound effects job is Star Trek, and the first score is Escape from New York. And... That is somewhat of a an abbreviated history of Alan Howarth, and I have to say, Alan, he has gone on to do so many scores and still doing sound design, but he's also now currently working on something really fascinating with frequencies, and uh, hopefully in the future, uh, Alan will be on, he will be on the show uh, in the future, and we can uh, get into more of that. But again. You know, check it out, the award ceremony for his induction into the Hall into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame is this Sunday, the 18th at the Canyon Club. And again, check with the club, make sure that you know, the, the club is standing, that the event is proceeding and that uh, all fire dangers are gone by then. Well, we're still waiting for our other guest uh to call in moby longinato um who i'm trying to find out where he is we have confirmed we do have alex winter coming up at the half hour mark though uh so no worries people uh the excellent bill s preston will be joining us uh but very sad news to report that just came in uh, as we went on the air stan lee has passed away uh this is truly uh at 95 years old, and definitely at an advanced age like that, you kind of expect it. But Stan Lee has always seemed like his characters, immortal, and uh, a superhero in his own right. So this is a real tragedy. Uh, he started in the business back in 1939, and he has He died this morning at Cedar sinai uh, in Beverly Hills. Uh, truly, truly uh, a sad, sad day for the comic book world, for the movie world, for all of us who have been fans of Stan's for so long. Um, you know, Stan either created or co-created Spider-Man, X-Men, Thor, Iron Man, Fantastic Four, Ant-Man, Incredible Hulk, Black Panther. Um, he is the crux of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this is um, uh, 
I'm waiting to see what statements are coming out from Bob Iger over at Disney, from Kevin Feige over at Marvel. Uh, and there will be outpourings of love and tribute from around the globe, I am sure, because all of us have been touched by Stanley's work in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, my condolences to his family, uh, even the ones that are fighting with him. Uh, it is never easy, but this is one sorrow that the world will collectively will collectively mourn and share. Stan Lee has passed away at the age of 95 uh, this morning at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. Um, Pam, do we have a, a, a one of our PSAs to pop up right now? I think it's rather fitting. So we're going to... A powerful threat calls for a greater response. When there's a battle, bring strength. When there's a problem, seek answers. When there is doubt, give hope. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. Right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit standuptocancer.org to learn more. Together we can save lives. are back and for those of you listening in case you didn't recognize it uh that was uh that PSA features a good many of the Avengers uh seems rather fitting this morning uh well we're go- we've got about 4 minutes to go before we get Alex Winter so in the interim since I don't know where our other guest is um we're going to go back and hear some more not that last ship fans are going to complain uh, we're going to hear some more from Bren Foster in my exclusive interview with him, talking about his character of Wolf Taylor. But first, I think, why don't we do the first clip where he's talking about social media and his interaction with his fans? Because that has been one of the core elements that has helped make that helped make the last ship so successful, so popular. Um, so here's some more from Bren Foster talking the last ship and his fans. With, with social media, I try to, if someone takes, the, I can only really speak for myself, but if, if people take the time to write to me, I try to always, I try to, I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but I try to respond um, when I can. Sometimes there's a lot of people and sometimes I miss messages, of course, um, but um, I think, yeah, I mean, I personally try to respond, so I think that perpetuates the uh, the social media aspect and gets more people talking, more people involved, more people tagged. Um, there was, um, I think, my last show, like Days of Our Lives, there was a little bit of, you know, Twitter involvement then, but not to the same extent that it's been on the last ship. It just, it seems that the fans are just kind of, and the level of interaction that, that we get is, is kind of kind of phenomenal actually it's kind of great um but 
I just, yeah, it is surprising, but I, I can't explain it. I guess the fans just really love the show and they're, they're happy to interact with us, which is um, fortunate for us and the show, I guess. And yes, indeed, um, because as it, and, you know, Brent is one of the actors that actually does. He has been live tweeting throughout the show, East Coast and West Coast time. So what is it about the character of creating Wolf Taylor? So let's do clip two, talking about Wolf, Pam. They certainly give him, they just, they, they kind of haven't kept him um, one-dimensional. And, and when I look at the writing, it's, I mean, it, it also comes down to me, how I interpret something, how I can take something another way. I mean, because if you just read the writing, you've got a, a number of ways you could interpret it. Um, could you just always keep him as this, like, bulletproof, you know, Superman that just runs through everyone? Or do you find moments where he really does embrace the vulnerable side or the human side of him? You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about being surprised by the character, but um, I think it's just trying to make him a well-rounded human being and uh, not keeping him at one level. I mean, he is more so than any of the other characters. Um, he's he's true warrior. He he personifies personifies the the warrior ethos. Um, and I think, and that, and that's not out of arrogance for Wolf or out of you know, false bravado or anything like that. It's it's out of his his um, code of ethics. It, it's the standard that he holds himself to. Um, he's pure warrior, and that's one of the things why he likes um, Azima so much because she kind of represents a part of who she is, who who he is, mm-hmm. and that's why they kind of um, you know gelled so well together as a as a power couple. Um, oh. Yes, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I am surprised at different times, but I don't, I don't know, Denny. There's, there's so many answers I could give you for that. But I think um, the physical side that I was able to bring to Wolf um, enhanced the character, um, and it gave him that little uh, that little point of difference, that little edge mm-hmm. that you know not all the other characters had, obviously. But um, you know, we're all individuals, and all the characters are, are very different from each other. And um, that's one of his uh, defining attributes, which kind of separates Wolf from everyone else, is, is the fact that uh, it's kind of the aggression and the, um, the um, unarmed combat uh, skills that he possesses. Okay, and that was Bren Foster giving us a little more insight into the character of Wolf Taylor on The Last Ship. And... I'm very excited because as soon as Pam is done playing with the phone in there, are you done, Pam? She's nodding her head. Okay. Well, I am beyond thrilled to welcome the very excellent Alex Winter to the show. Hey, Alex. Hi, how are you? Well, I am thrilled to be talking to you. It's last time we got to talk was at the Four Seasons talking about Smosh, the movie. Very cool. So that's been a few years, but I have I have to tell you, I and that was the first time you had actually told me about your deep web documentary. I hunted it down to watch it, uh, where you explored the Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht. Um, that was your follow up to Downloaded. Now we have Trust Machine, the story of blockchain. And for somebody that was totally confused by this whole premise, Alex. Watching your documentary, it all finally started making sense to me what exactly cryptocurrency is and what this blockchain is. So 
I can't That's thank great. I, I can't hear that. I can't thank you enough for making this easy to understand um, so that we get we now know what blockchain is and exactly what cryptocurrency is. We hear about Bitcoin all the time, uh, but we've never really you, nobody really explains what it is. It's like hypothetical. It's floating in the Ethernet and that's it. I personally like the money I can put my hands on. But at least now I understand, you know, how all of this is congealing and working together. But I'm curious, what is your attraction to subject matter like this and particularly breaking down this whole idea of blockchain? Well, you know, I have I've been involved in the world of emerging technologies for a long time, and I've been very interested in watching the evolution of different communities uh, online. And no one's really told the story about cryptocurrency and blockchain-based technologies and this new moment that we're in from that perspective of people, the people involved, the possible uses, the scams, you know, really putting your whole arms around the entire space. I just hadn't seen it done. Uh, and so I just felt like a good time not to try to make declarative final statements about this space, but really just ask a lot of questions and go out and meet the people around the world who are doing the most interesting things in this space, even the people that were doing crazy things in this space. So that was really the, the motivation. You know, and for those listening, how would you describe, how would, how would you break down what blockchain chain is? Well, all blockchain is is the, the record for a cryptocurrency is one way to look at it. In other words, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, and it has a record of all the transactions, and that's something that we call a blockchain. Each cryptocurrency, whether it be Bitcoin or Ether or NEO or any of them, have their own blockchain. Each one has an individual blockchain. That blockchain is just a record. What makes that interesting, potentially, is the level of encryption and the ability to verify that ledger so that you can have information in that ledger that is verifiable and very difficult to hack. The other thing that's interesting about about blockchain-type technology is that it's open source and it's decentralized, meaning that many, many, many computers are linked together to both run this ledger and to view the ledger. So if something goes onto a blockchain ledger, anyone can view it. It's totally transparent. So you can imagine, frankly, many uses for that type of technology uh, beyond cryptocurrency and currency exchange dealing with contract law, copyright law, other ways of, in the film we get into. UNICEF is using it to tag refugees so that you can keep a, a verifiable record of where they are and what type of work they've done so that they can get paid and be fed. Um, there's many uses for, for this type of technology. Well, you know, and that's something that I'm glad you brought up, UNICEF, and how this blockchain technology can be used for um, refugees as a means of giving them identity and keeping track of them. And that I found to be one of the great things that you bring out in the documentary are the human applications. 
um, that this can be used for. It's not just for, quote unquote, tracking, you know, money, coin or Ethereum or NEO. It's, you know, you can actually apply this and see because you go around and you have interviews. You have people in what Kenya you're doing in, interviews with who have their own, you know, passel of uh, hard drives there making, uh, you know, creating blockchain and making coin. And you really bring bring this to a personal level. And you did this with Deep Web as well. And that was one of the great things because you give us that touchstone so that we can we can begin to understand and see applications and also see uh, where the protagonist, the antagonist, and the possibilities for why people don't want it used and why people do. Is that one of the appeals? Because that seems to be a thread that you follow with your documentaries is humanizing it and honing in on individuals as opposed to mindless graphics and you know, p- pictures of, of data transferring through through the Ethernet. Yeah, to me, the Internet and the information age in general is obviously largely about people, who created it, why they created it, what their motives were, what the benefits are, what the drawbacks are. Those things interest me a lot and I feel are often neglected in favor of looking at the shinier objects, both for good and ill. In other words, the Internet and technology is going to be our saving grace, or conversely, the Internet and technology is going to be the end of us all. Um, I find that most films in the technology space are frankly just uh, often very biased towards the negative, which I understand there are a lot of negatives around the information age and technology, but I think that in, in doing that, you may cater to the public's uh, general unease around technology, but you're really missing the truth um, and the nuance and what's important about this moment that we're in. So the films I make in the technology space tend to be looking at that nuance. They tend to be looking more at the grays um, and less just saying these technologies are terrible or these technologies are going to save us all. And the film really does look at all aspects of, of the, this area, people who are doing things for terrible reasons, just purely reasons of greed or scams um, or just hype, people who don't really know what they're doing but are jumping into the blockchain space because it's a, a buzzword, uh, to people who are doing, uh, looking to try to solve some really big problems with these types of technologies that I think are undeniably admirable, even if those solutions morph and evolve as Time goes on. Yeah, and I love how you really, what really pulled me in uh, with with resonance and connection is you focused on Lori Love and his story. How did you go about connecting with Lori and then from there setting up your numerous other experts and, uh, and cryptographers, security people, uh, to create all the interviews that we then see. But it's, I'm particularly fascinated with Laurie because his case, his legal case, which is fascinating. Yeah, extraordinary. So um, how did you, you know, how did you connect with Laurie and determine to make him our entry point? Well, with each of these, I really try to find um, at least one central human figure who is caught up in the, the gears of 
and the conflicts of these uh, technologies and these moments that we're in um, from an ethical and sociological point of view, not just a technological point of view. And in, in Downloaded, that was really Sean Fanning primarily who was really pulled into a very difficult situation. And again, not entirely um, without being responsible for being in that situation, which isn't really the point. It's not to exonerate these people or to, or to, to criticize them, uh, but to present these extremely stressful situations that arise for an individual. Obviously, that was Ross Ulbricht and, and the creator of the Silk Road and Deep Web, who's now serving a double life sentence without parole for, for his, um, you know, his role in the, in the creating of that black market and the dark net. Lowry was, is a very famous case that I was well aware of from the moment it happened. Um, he's a, he is a blockchain expert, a computer scientist, and he's doing very, very interesting and innovative things in that space. But he was also um, being charged with, with computer crimes that could have resulted in a 100-year prison sentence, uh, largely being accused of defacing uh, DOJ websites in protest of Aaron Swartz's death. And Aaron Swartz was another very important person in, um, in Internet activism, among many other things, who committed suicide when he was under prosecution. Um, so we, it allowed us to look at something called the CFAA, which is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a very broad and somewhat uh, clumsy uh, and poorly written uh, law that is being used to attack uh, pretty much anyone in the space that the government finds threatening. And so Lowry allowed us to personify that, uh, that threat and the victims of that, um, that prosecutorial overreach. So we tracked his case from the moment that we started filming for, you know, for over a year as he was dealing with appeals requests and attempting to not be removed from the United Kingdom and brought to the U.S. to face these egregious charges. It was, uh, it was something we were all very tense and stressed out about why we were shooting because we really had no idea what the outcome was going to be for him. You know, and then you expand from him and you bring in all these other people. How... You know, how do you go about constructing your through line and determining who you need to talk to, who you want to talk to, after you talk to them, who isn't going to fit with the through line that is falling into place for you? That's really the, the primary process of making documentaries is, is the removing of things. It's very easy to cast a wide net um, and to make contact with lots of experts and lots of relevant people to your subject. It, uh, the real craft of it, I find, is in the removing of, of whatever elements are not uh, telling your story in an emotional and dramatic way. You know, as you said yourself, you know, nobody wants to see a film filled with graphs and diagrams. I, I certainly would never want to make a piece of infotainment like that. I'm more interested in telling a very rich experiential emotional story and so all the decisions that we make while we're we're in editorial um are being driven by that that end game and figuring out what's the best way to convey this stuff emotionally and in a way that the audience can connect with uh so we you know we were lucky and we we were able to connect with some really really extraordinary people who are in the the blockchain and technology space uh many of whom never made it to the finished product which you know, usually they're very understanding of it's. It's not because we're critical of what they had to say. It's because it just didn't serve the 
drama. It didn't really give you a, a, an emotional punch. Um, and so the characters that we ended up with are people that, for a number of reasons, gave you a broad and emotional, dramatic way into this world. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you, you mix it up for us, too. So we get the science. We get the technology. We also get, you know, economic discussion as well. Uh, and that I find really well put together, well thought out. And I've got to commend your editor, Tim Struby. Tim's work is just phenomenal in terms of keeping the pacing and, you know, putting all of the filmmaking building blocks of this story together. How much time do the two of you spend in the editing bay together on this one? Uh, a lot. You always do. The <laughs> docs are built and edit. Uh Tim is, is amazing. He's uh, an editor that I'd worked with several times um, on shorter form uh, material. He had done deep web uh, sizzles and trailers for us and when we were doing the Kickstarter. Um, and then he had done some work on Frank Zappa, the documentary I'm working on now. Um, and he's really, really talented. And, and um, I don't know if he's cut a full-length film before. He's worked on full-length films as an editor. I don't know if he had been you know, the, the primary editor on a feature-length film before. So when I had the opportunity to work with Tim on, you know, on one-on-one on this as the, the editor, I really jumped at it. And he's very, very good at, at uh, balancing extremely complex information but pulling the narrative and the drama out of it and sort of separating the wheat from the chaff in that way. Um, but, yeah, he, was, he did an amazing job, and it was very, very challenging. I mean, I know enormous amount about this world and and Tim came to be extremely educated about this space as well but it can get very complicated it can get frankly very dull um, and it was really important to both of us to craft a story that felt emotional and also rounded meaning we weren't either making a sales pitch for blockchain which both of us have a lot of skepticism about frankly but nor were we just making another one of these technology docs that throws rocks at these technologies and says they're they're nothing but evil Mm-hmm. How now? How much footage did you have to go through? Were you editing as you went to help to, <laughs> to help develop that narrative, or did you wait until you had everything and then say, "Okay, here we go"? It's kind of a it's kind of a bit of both. It's a living process making docs, which is what I love about doing it. You you do pull in. I mean, the way I tend to work, I I, I as I start building interviews and writing. The, the script, meaning what the narrative thrust is going to be, which is going to change dramatically over the course of the film, but it's still, you have to start somewhere. Um, I, you know, I have a research and archival team, and we start pulling enormous amounts of media down um, about these subjects and about the various the people involved. But a lot of that is either discarded along the way um, and then replaced with new media. So it's a constant process of cutting what you have, building in the interviews, seeing what you need, getting more stuff, getting rid of stuff you had. It's the type of process where you're making and remaking the movie over and over again um, as you get more rock solid about your structure and your narrative and what the story is that you're telling. But we had an enormous amount of media to go through. And right up to the end, we were finding whole swaths of stuff that we didn't have that we knew we wanted to look at and play with. Um, and you end up with five or six or seven or eight different movies uh, at a certain point, uh, of which you're only going to end up with one. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, and I love asking this question because typically, I'll, you know, a director, they go through the process much as you have done. And you're building along the way. But not to a few months ago, I actually spoke with a director here on the show and he had over 400 hours of footage he shot. And he waited until he had all of it before he started editing. And I was just tongue tied. It's like you have 400 hours of footage to now start going through. And when I look at the number of interviews that you actually have on camera in this in Trust Machine, I my mind just it was boggling at how much work you actually put in and how much footage you have that we're not even seeing. Yeah, it's a vast amount. It it's it was less on this one than say on the Frank Zappa project where we have over a thousand hours of archival alone before. Mm-hmm even the interview footage comes into play. Um, that is a truly, truly mammoth undertaking that we've been working on for several years already and have at least another three-quarters of a year in front of us. Uh, in terms of Trust Machine, yes, we had a lot of material. Um, it was, in some cases, it was easier to, to know what to get rid of because we got rid of anything that just felt overly informational, overly technical, uh, overly graphic, Mm-hmm. You know, things that were just diagrams and explainers and things like that. That's really tedious to an audience. So we really focused on the human. And that that did happily restrict what media we had because there was only so much of it. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the appeal for you of making documentaries? Um, these are such a... But actually, when I sit and I look at it and I see, you know, the scripts for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure... Um, and the history that is invoked in there, in a, albeit in a comedic form, but there is history there that countless, countless students over the years, they have sworn by the history presented in, the, in that film. I'm so sorry for that. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but here you are, and you, you, you know, you're well known for that as an actor, but here you are doing documentaries, also imparting historical information that is very relevant to the world in which we live. Um, and obviously much more reliable as source material than <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Uh, but I'm curious, what is the appeal of the documentary format and the nonfiction aspect for you? You know, I really love people. And I'm very curious about a lot of various areas. Uh, And those two things are really the food for documentarians. Um, I come out of narrative filmmaking and narrative writing, and so Mm -hmm. I'm very uh, adherent to the the fundamental rules of screenwriting and, and storytelling in a narrative way. So I like combining that with the real. I like shaping and crafting uh, very airtight dramas, narrative dramas, out of real material. That's a, uh, a very satisfying creative challenge. And I also really love how documentaries allow you to have protagonists that are nuanced. Uh, it's much more difficult to do that in, in uh, fictional narrative drama, where you really have to uh, make a decision about your character being, you know, veering more towards the good or veering more towards the negative. Um, 
I think a really good case in point for me because it's it is both a brilliant piece of filmmaking and writing and it's technological um, is Social Network. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a film that I love very much, but knowing uh, a lot about Zuckerberg and the Facebook story, I also know what had to be changed about that story in order to make that movie work. Um, and, you know, no judgment against the film, but personally I find the truth uh, of those characters to be far more interesting than they were portrayed. Um, and, but, you know, Sorkin had no choice. Those, those choices had to be made. And uh, something that I found when I was working on downloaded the documentary because I'd written it originally to do as a narrative at mm. Paramount many years ago was how much more nuanced my characters were in the doc than they would have been in my narrative. I didn't have to make them heroes or villains. I didn't have to discard some of the more interesting aspects of their personality in order to tell the story. I was able to use all of it. Um, and that's an aspect of documentaries that I think is really profound. Um, uh, from a storytelling standpoint, is they are they have the ability when they're done, I think, well and and uh, properly, they have the ability to not just be either a critique or a uh, a hagiography, you know, just a a way of celebrating something. Uh, those do- tend to be the docs I like very much. Um, I tend to prefer docs that are more nuanced and aren't trying to present me something that says this is wholly bad or wholly good, but this is has all the the warts and uh, you know, good sides and bad sides that make up human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, was there anything surprising uh, to you that came out of your work on Trust Machine? Gosh, there's always something that's surprising for a couple reasons. One is is it's exploratory. So every interview uh, you have is telling you something about the world that you didn't know. Um, you know, where there were things about the government's uh, um, overreach in terms of the way they were dealing with these cases that I didn't know. There were things about their attempts to understand and work with these technologies that I didn't know. You know, it cut both ways. Um, there were things about the the blockchain te- technology I was very, very skeptical about coming in uh, in terms of some of the broader uses of it that mm-hmm. I remained far less skeptical about when I came out the other end. And then conversely, there were aspects of it that I thought may have value that turned out to really just be mostly scams and financial speculation mm-hmm. uh, once I investigated them for, further. But the other things about docs that I love is how collaborative they are because, you know, there were also times when Tim uh, Stroob had gone down a road and discovered aspects of the story that had just never occurred to me. And so there were things that, you know, that other people are bringing to the story besides yourself uh, that are also opening your eyes. And that process I, I really love about uh, about making docs. Now, you know, uh, I'm curious because if Tim's discovering some aspect you hadn't thought of, does that, how often does that then force you to go out and get more footage, more interviews, more material to explore that avenue? Absolutely. Yeah, it, always. Uh, always. I mean, uh, you know, you, it's not uncommon in a documentary if you work this way to have your editor tell you, to give you a list of stuff you got to go shoot. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I'm not I'm not a I'm, a I'm not alien to that experience at all. It's it's pretty common in, in all of the docs that you get that. So in other words, you're not the one with the shot list. He is. Well, I mean, I absolutely <laughs> am the one with the shot list, but I am not by any means the only one with the shot list. <laughs> oh my God! Well, I would be remiss. I'm I'm also curious about I've got to ask you about the Panama Papers. 
Of course. Is that out yet? I am really anxious to see it. I have not got seen anything from any publicist on it. So I really want to know where can I find the Panama Papers and you know, and what is your focus uh, in that? Well, the Panama Papers is a story I worked on for several years, uh, which is going to be coming out on Epix on cable at the end of November. Uh, so you will start seeing quite a bit of Great. rumbling about that over the next few weeks. Um, and it's a story that was very, very important to me. It's the, the largest uh, coordinated act of journalism in history, and they broke the biggest corruption scandal ever. Uh, which was a data leak that exposed exactly how uh, offshore tax evasion and other forms of financial mechanisms that allow people to hide their money um, was creating you know, huge problems globally just for the way econ- economies work, the way civil uh, societies work in terms of your access to health care, your access to education, your access to clean water and good roads, that all of that money um, that is not going into uh, the public coffers as it is supposed to legally is really preventing um, global infrastructure from working properly. And, and it was a real eye-opener for me. Um, but it was also an extraordinary story about very heroic journalists around the world who were risking their lives to, to break the story. And people did get killed and people were under threat. Um, so it was a very challenging story for us to tell as well. Um, but it means a lot to me, this film. I'm very, very proud of it. And um, it's going to be out on, on TV in the U.S., and then it'll be on you know, streaming and VOD and all over the rest of the world on, on other channels and, and other platforms. Yeah, I mean, I am, I am really dying for that one, Alex. I can't wait to see that one. Um, for what for whatever Great. reason, I'm very attracted to that one. So I, I will be there watching it immediately as soon as I get any info on it. But in the meantime, where can people see Trust Machine, the story of blockchain? Uh, well, Trust Machine is going to be uh, in some theaters between now and the end of the year. We have a a run coming up in L.A. this weekend uh, mm-hmm. at the Lemley Monica. We just had a very successful run in New York. We were extended there, which I was very happy about. Um, then we'll be doing some other theatrical events. Uh, in the spring, we will come out wide all over on a brand-new streaming platform uh, from Singular DTV, which is the company that made the film. They're launching a big, uh, brand-new uh, platform, media platform. And then we'll be out after that all over the place in the usual channels. So people need to keep an eye out for that one. It'll oh. be Panama Papers is really going to be out wide first, but if it's coming to your town, uh, then you will have a chance to see it. Wow. Well, before I let you go, I'd be remiss not to ask, what's the latest on Bill and Ted number three? Well, we're it's the uh, what we've been telling everyone is that we're we're very close to shooting. Um, we have been planning to shoot in the early part of next year, and that is still the game plan. So the, the guy has been working on a production rewrite of the script, which we frankly just got, and uh, everything else is moving along well. So fingers crossed we'll stay on schedule. And it won't interfere with you completing Zappa? Nope. No, <laughs> we're working away. We're busy, busy bees on Zappa at the moment, so I expect to be uh, pretty much done with that cut before I dive into to Bill Land. Oh, my God. Well, Alex, I can't thank you enough. It is such a joy, and I just, I love your documentaries. I always learn. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I always learn something. 
I had no understanding of this whole blockchain cryptocurrency until I saw your doc. And I now at least have a basic understanding. And I really think anyone that sees it is also going to gain an important understanding of how this is now involved in our world today. Please keep making more like this. Um, it's, it, your work is always fabulous. Thank you. That's greatly appreciated. I'm happy to come back anytime. Oh, uh, well, Panama Papers, we may have to get you back for that one. Happy to do it. Oh, Alex, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Alex Winter talking about his new film, Documentary Trust Machine, The Story of Blockchain. Oh, It's in New York now, L.A. now, expanding wider. Then he's got another film coming out later this month. The guy is always working. And then we have Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure 3 to look forward to. Well, that is all the time that we have today. Huge, huge thanks to Alex Winter. Again, Alan Howarth, sound man, composer extraordinaire, being inducted into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame on Sunday. Check it out. Canyon Club in Agora Hills. Tickets are available. Um, And we say goodbye to the last ship. We're book solid, running into December in coming weeks. And next week, General Hospital fans, stay tuned. You're going to hear from Wes Ramsey, who plays Peter Heinrich. And he's also got a, a new film coming out. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.